This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hello, welcome to Graphic Novel TK. We're excited to be talking to Jenny Holm today about finishing your graphic novel, which is an exciting part of the process. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. And let's get started. Uh, Jenny, thanks so much for coming to talk to us here today. Uh, Can you tell us a little about who you are, how you got into comics, and how you got from that first comic you ever read to where you are today? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Well, to, to start at the beginning, I actually started as a children's book author. So I, my first book was published with HarperCollins in 1999. It was called Our Only May Amelia, and I'm very happy it's still in print. And it's historical fiction. So I kind of have a parallel writing life where I write uh, novels, mostly inspired by historical fiction, although not always. And then I have the other side of my creative life is doing graphic novels. And your novels are like award-winning, Newbery honor-winning, very prestigious. Uh, it is an excellent like side career to your comics. Um, yeah, my, my parents were very happy. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so it was kind of it kind of was my parents that got me into comics. To be honest, so I'm one of five children. I'm the only girl, middle child in a family of boys, and uh, our dad who has passed away was a huge uh comic strip fan and so when we were growing up we actually had the, these bound volumes of his favorite two comic strips from his childhood which were prince valiant and flash gordon he was in world war ii so he was a much older father and so i grew up reading those comics and i love them but i also read what all of my brothers were reading just to preface, we have a really big age gap among the children. So my older brothers were reading like original mass market paperbacks of of Peanuts. And my younger brothers, you know, many years later, were reading the original mass market Calvin and Hobbes paperbacks. So I read everything they were reading. And I also read, of course, all of the superhero comics. And my mom had a little trick to try to have us be quiet children during our long car trips on vacation. We grew up in Pennsylvania and would go down to Florida. So, you know, three days in a, the old station wagon with four kids, as you can imagine, was like a complete joy. So she, uh, she used to give us at the beginning of each car trip, like a, we, we, each kid would get their own individual bag of floppies, floppy comics. And so I was reading everything my brothers were reading and it was a little disappointing at the time because there were not very many ladies in comics. I mean, I know Wonder Woman was there and she's certainly enjoying an amazing comeback right now, but I didn't really relate to her as like an elementary school girl. I really craved for there to be a character like Peter Parker, who was just a regular teenager who turned into Spider-Man and that my brothers could relate to. There was really nobody like that for me. And I didn't I didn't gel like that with the artsy characters. So my youngest brother, Matt, was always a budding cartoonist. He actually um, studied art in college, and he had an internship with a political cartoonist in Philadelphia named Tony Auth. And he discovered that he didn't like being a political cartoonist, but he liked writing comics. So cut to many, many years later, um, both of us are grown up out of the house and living in New York City. And I had published... I want to say maybe eight or nine books by this point. And I came up with the idea for Baby Mouse. And I was living in Brooklyn. He was living in Queens. It was a subway story. So uh, I went to see him and I said, what do you think? Maybe we can work on this together. And that was the beginning of Baby Mouse. Oh, that's awesome. So you started Baby Mouse. It got published by Random House. They're like... (laughs) 20 volumes of it now yes there's like a whole a whole lot of that book and it sells a whole lot of copies and it's won awards and all that sort of thing yeah i mean it's been a joy to work on baby mouse it was one of the first graphic novels published by a major publishing house yeah and you know that was a big thing at the time it wasn't an easy sale and so we're going back to 2001 actually was when we first started taking it out and we had to kind of convince publishers of two things one that girls would read comics because we made the character very deliberately a girl and then it was my idea 
to actually have a children's publisher, a classic uh, book publisher publish it, not a a comics publisher like DC or Marvel, because I felt that the way you reach children is, you know, through libraries and through schools, and they are very supportive of books. And so I really wanted to go through a children's publisher. So we also had to simultaneously convince a children's publisher to create a graphic novel, which was a completely different publishing process, like completely different printing process. Baby Mouse is 96 pages. To do 96 pages of art was something that most publishers have never done. I mean, a picture book is between 36 and 40 pages, maybe 42 pages. So this was like the equivalent of doing, you know, three picture books. It was an incredible amount of art, um, trying to figure out what is the process, you know, how do we all work together? And to figure out an art pipeline took us two years working with Random House and the art director and editor there just to figure out how are we going to make this. So it was a big learning curve for everybody on both sides, the creators and the publishers. I'm sure Gina knows this, but I'm actually not sure. Briefly, what, what's the creative process like for these books on, on your end? Yes. Yeah, so Matt and I, we consider ourselves co-creators, even though I do most of the heavy lifting on the writing and he does most of the heavy lifting on the art. We had kind of had to figure out a way to MacGyver this because, you know, with most traditional comics, you have like a whole staff. <laughs> you have a penciler and an inker and a color, and it was just Matt and I. So we actually divide up the process, and we always start with story. And so we both kind of come up with the general idea for the story. So for a Baby Mouse book, for instance, Baby Mouse Beach Babe is about her going to um, the shore over summer vacation and the trials and tribulations of, you know, going on vacation with your siblings. So we kind of generally came up with the idea together. And then I'll write it first. And I write it using a classic advertising storyboard. It's uh, four um, columns across, three rows up and down. And I just beat out the narration the action and the dialogue. And the reason we use a storyboard, I was a broadcast producer in advertising before I came to comics. And that's how you make television commercials. And so it was a it was a format I was really used to working on. And so it's very easy for an editor to read that also and for an artist to read it. And so I'll write it using a storyboard. And my say my storyboards for Baby Mouse for a 96 page book usually break out to about 50, 55 pages. Then I'll email to Matt. Um, Matt will usually take an edit at it. His previous career was he was actually an editor uh, for magazines. He was an editor for Hearst magazines. So he's used to that role. And I think one thing that we did both bring to the table, having both worked in industry for a long time, is that we're very used to, to collaborating with other people and taking criticism is just part of daily work. And that's how it works in advertising and, and magazines. So after he's happy with the manuscript, we send it to our editor at Random House. And then she takes, you know, two or three or four stabs at it. So we'll revise it until everybody's feeling very comfortable with the script. And then Matt starts sketching. So we don't live anywhere near each other. We haven't actually lived near each other since we sold Baby Mouse in 2003. We sold it when we were both living in New York City, and then we promptly both moved because uh, both of our spouses moved us other places. So we've always worked on this long distance. So he will start um, doing what we call thumbnail sketches. So he'll just take a small sketch pad, and he'll just quickly pencil sketch out what he thinks I've written. And he kind of does it more in a filmic style, which is to say, sometimes he'll give me a lot of footage of a shot. He might give me a shot of Baby Mouse running towards camera or running across the screen. And I'll often put in uh, a lot of film terminology, like, you know, this is from the POV of Baby Mouse to try to help him have like a filmic view of it. After he's um, sketched all that, he'll um, scan all of those little thumbnails and then he'll drop box them to me uh, Dropbox is the best thing to happen to comic creators, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, agreed, honestly. Yeah. I spent most of this morning on Dropbox. So. <laughs> it is very useful. It is our lifeline. So, I mean, we, we have worked with me being in California and Matt being in China. So we would die without that. Um, then he'll uh, send that all to me. And 
the process for baby mess is we kind of have a low tech, high tech way of, of putting the book together. So we're still kind of in a pencil stage and I'll lay out the book, which is kind of unusual for a writer to do. I know. So I'll print out, um, all of the art and then I'll actually cut and lay it out the way it's going to look in the panels. I'll make the panels on the page. So I'll lay out the whole book for him. And that's a good opportunity for me to sometimes see gaps in the story. This is where I, I might even cut little bits. You can see where you might want to have like a funny little joke or one piece of art. You might want to take it from like being just like a quarter of a page to make that a great full page piece of art. So it's a very organic part of the process. Um, after I've laid it out, I scan all of those layouts. I send them back to Matt. And in the early days, before we kind of got our routine down, he used to then do a, a Sharpie marker version of all that art. These days, we don't do that. He goes straight to doing a digital version of that, of the art. He does all of the final art using a Cintiq. He's always done the the final art for Baby Mouse digitally. It's so interesting listening to this because because of the timeline of how you're working on this and how long you've been doing it. Like you guys have been both trailblazing graphic novels as being something that mainstream publishers are doing and also having to have your process evolve as the standards for these things. Like you're you're both setting those standards and having to adapt to changes in technology at the same time. It's very interesting as somebody who's been I started a little bit later than you to be listening to your descriptions of all of these things. Yeah, and you know, techno what's been funny is like the technology changes. So Matt was always doing this digitally I feel like kind of early on in a way. And um he has this like monster computer where he, we, we do it all on MacBooks. Uh, we are a big Apple fans. So he MacGyvered this Mac and he um, had like the screen ripped off and somehow put on as a drawing pad onto his laptop. So it's like this monster Macintosh that he can travel with because we both travel a lot. So, and he just started using a Cintiq this year. Oh my God. I know, right? He finally like is putting the, the MacGyvered monster down. So, uh-huh. Um, okay, so the subject of this podcast is really all the stuff that comes after that part. Uh, it's about what do you do once you're finished with, you know, inking on the Cintiq, that final panel, like figuring out, like, I think that this final draft of the text that I have is good. And you're getting ready to turn everything into your editor and being like, okay, like the art and the writing of this book are done. Um, we have our final manuscript. We're very excited. Yes. And I, I just think that a lot of people kind of think at that point, they like draw a line under their work and they're just like, okay, I'm done. Like off, off to a new project. I won't think about this one anymore. I've hit the upload button and a year later, I'll go buy this in the store. Yes. Um, but perhaps <laughs> that's not exactly how it works. I don't know if that's been your experience, Jenny. Yeah, no. So, <laughs> so for instance, I mean, it's kind of just the beginning. Um, because so many things have to happen in the process. So for both ba the Baby Mouse books and also we do a more complicated graphic novel series, a full color series with um, Scholastic called the Sunny series, that's just, just writing the script is the first step in the process. So after, you know, say I, I submit a script and we've started to lay it out, then it's got to be we call it routing. It's got to be routed through copy edit and some poor copy editor has to go through all of our layouts. And what's even funnier is that our copy editor at uh, Random House has a unique um, duty because in many of the early books, um, as Matt was turning in final work for Baby Mouse, he kept forgetting to put her tail on her. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and her whiskers in a lot of the art because we were just uh, exhausted. And so... She actually is the official tail and whisker checker as a copy editor. She has to go through and make sure he didn't forget that. I've heard of that before, that copy editing is just for graphic novels being kind of a general consistency check in some cases. Like, here's a style guide. It includes whiskers. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as well as looking at, you know, did you spell all of your words with O in them in the Canadian or British way so they have an extra U there? It's also, you know... In panel one, did Baby Mouse have a pink shirt? And, and then in panel two, she has a black shirt. Perhaps something is is off with this. Like, perhaps her shirt should be the same color. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's happened. That happens still all the time. So we're doing Baby Mouse has a spinoff. She's doing we're doing middle grade books for her now, which is a little less art intensive. But that still happened recently where he turned in some art where I'd given very specific art direction about Baby Mouse is trying to look very French, you know, and <laughs> he just drew her with a T-shirt on. And so he had to go back and French her up and put like a little scarf on and a little like you know, stripes, stripes. Sure. Yeah. It's all those things you, you miss. And then we try to, in every book we've worked on, try to speed up the process in some way to just, um, streamline it. So for instance, uh, I do think right now for publishing, it's a digital experience for publishing books. That's how the books are made mostly. And so baby mouse has enjoyed great success around the world. We're very happy about that, but when you get a book translated, they're going to have to um, drop in their own text. So Matt, early on, when we did the very first Baby Mouse, and also for Squish, he created our own fonts. So we don't have somebody who hand letters Baby Mouse. He has like a, an official Baby Mouse font that we can send to do foreign editions, and they can drop in their own foreign translations. And that speeds up the process a lot. And how did you make that font? Was it something that you selected or something that you created? So he created it um, because it was good because he came from a very desi- design-heavy industry. He he created his own font um, using his handwriting. Kind of, you can create a font. You write every letter of the alphabet in upper and lower case and in italics and all of the periods and quotation marks and anything you can ever use. And then you have a font and he did that also for squish. We have a squish font and I feel like he did it for the sunny books, but don't quote me. I'm not a hundred percent sure what he did <laughs> at that point. I checked out. I'm like, you should do whatever you want. <laughs> so. so that's all part of the, the design process, which is possibly something that also happens after you turn the book in. Yes. And that was one of the best things we ever did because as the books get closer to finish, if you have to change a word here or there in the old days, if you hand lettered it, you'd have to white it out. You know, if you had a, you change something small, you'd have to white it out. The letterer would have to re-letter it. Now, depending on the stage it's at, either Matt can quickly fix it. If it's at Random House, an art director can fix it. It's, it's very easy. So when you turn in your your book, are you turning in like, you know, here's a PSD file of page one, here's a PSD file of page two, or possible like multiple PSD files, uh, which have black and white in color or something like that? Or are you turning in like a, a laid out InDesign in des- file? Yeah, he, it's a laid out InDesign file. Nice. So you're like, you know, letting the, the Random House Design Department off the hook for getting that book designed and lettered well now they actually do the lettering so matt will just create the speech balloons and they'll they'll drop in the text on their end so in order for them to do that i do one extra step where i do a um setting text document so some poor person isn't having to like translate it or pull it out of the script i'll just give them the setting text in a word document they could just cut and then you know drop it in in the font that's very kind of you. Yes. No, I didn't do that for the first couple of books, and I realized how cruel that was. <laughs> so, uh, Somewhere in here, obviously, speaking of design, like, in theory, this book is going to have a cover. So, like, you know, obviously, it's that you finish your book, and then you're like, time to do the cover, right? Like, that's clearly how... Obviously, that's how... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't even get that out with a straight face. <laughs> that is the exact chronological rollout of that process. So it actually is funny that the cover um, comes much earlier than even towards the finishing of the book. So um, both children's publishers we've worked with, they have something called sales conference, where they like to preview upcoming books to their sales force around the country. These are the, the super hardworking salespeople that actually go out to independent booksellers and indie comic stores and sell directly into their stores. So they start to kind of get them excited. And depending on the publisher, they might start teasing what their um, list is going to be up to a year before. So very early, sometimes soon after we have maybe submitted rough layouts, they'll ask for a cover. And then Matt and I will kind of talk about what should we do for the cover. And he'll do just kind of a couple of pencil mock-ups and they'll take that to a cover meeting in the publishing house with the art director and they'll discuss it internally if they feel this is a good direction. 
And usually you have to kind of go through several rounds of covers before everybody's happy. And it's kind of a necessary part of the process because you do want your salespeople to sell your book. And so you, you do have to listen to them and respect their judgment because they're the ones that are really on the road all the time. So uh, after there's kind of a consensus of the general direction of the cover, then like in the case of the baby mouse books, Matt will then actually do the, the physical cover himself. He'll, he'll design it. For the Sunny Books, actually, our art director, uh, Phil Falco, is the one who um, designs the cover itself, but Matt will supply the art. Okay, so you've got a cover, you've got the InDesign files turned in, and your copy editor is copy editing, you get that back, and then what happens after that? Can you talk a little about like looking at copy edit changes? Like, like what are you getting back from the copy editor? What do you do with it? We get copy edit changes in all different ways. Sometimes they'll send printouts and a copy editor has gone through it with a, a little red pencil and um, made changes or made suggestions for changes. Um, more lately, they'll send uh, PDFs where you can go through them and they'll have marked with track changes, the changes they're suggesting. Uh, sometimes the copy edits are obvious, like you forgot to put a period here. Sometimes an, a copy editor might just make a taste suggestion. It, it can kind of go all over the place. In the beginning, in my early days, I would be completely obsessed with copy edits. They would make me nuts. And now they don't make me nuts. <laughs> so... I love copy editors because to do that amount of work, they are so detail-oriented. The word copy is reminding me, though, of something else that's kind of happening. Some, it's, it's interesting because all this stuff is sort of happening kind of at the same time it to is. some degree. But like, so this has to do with the cover also. So there's all this content that's on your book that isn't technically part of the manuscript. Like there's descriptions on the back and there's copy on the flap. And then there's maybe you have acknowledgements like blurbs, dedication. Yeah. Like how much of that text are you responsible for? And how, when does that happen? It varies. Um, usually with the baby mouse books, one of the editors will take a first stab at the flap copy and then have me revise it. And I'm trying to think with the Sunny books, they tend to write it and then have me look at it. It's a fine line because, first of all, I hate writing flap copy. Oh, it's the worst. It, it's actually the worst thing. It's, it's writing an elevator pitch, a Steven Spielberg, 25 word or less picture movie on the flap. And so I hate it. And you also have to ride this line of let's tease the reader but not give the entire plot line away. So there is an art to it that I'm not particularly good at, to be honest. So I do defer to the editors to usually write it, and then I'll I'll take a crack at it. For dedications, uh, we have thanked every person that we know, I think. <laughs> We're actually on to our friends' kids at this point in our career. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. So it's like, it's mostly kids that we know who are getting all the dedications these days. So Aw, that's great. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Like every... Every best friend of my kids has had a book so far. And like, when is all this happening? Like, is this stuff that you get to do when you're kind of kicking back after you're done with a book? Or are these emails you're getting from your editor when you're in the middle of finishing the manuscript up? It's after the manuscript is done, but simultaneous to the art production, because they like to get it routed into copy edit, into marketing as early as possible. They really do. So this starts pretty quickly. And in the early days of Baby Mouse, we stopped doing this. We used to tease the next book at the end of every Baby Mouse book. We would tease a book we hadn't even written yet. <laughs> that was just that was just so hard. And I think we did that for, I don't know, I mean, 10, 15 books until finally we had to say, this is, this is so hard. So finally we stopped doing that. But um, yeah, they like as much advanced work on this done as possible. And... I think there's some other copy that's also included there, which can be excitingly traumatizing for people, namely the author bio. I have a manic grin on my face right now, even thinking about this, <laughs> uh, because it can be tough to put those together, especially when you're right at the beginning of your career. Yes, it's usually like, she's a human. No, um, <laughs> we, we've only we've always looked out in that our copy could include their brother and sister team, um, which there aren't too many of us. 
we usually riff off of that a little bit. We keep our own bios. We keep them pretty small. Um, the only thing we did was in the all of the baby mouse books, our author picture is actually a drawing Matt did, like a you know a cartoon of us. And for every uh, book, he would change up the cartoon to reflect the book. So it would just be one more thing for him to draw. <laughs> <laughs> and do you ever use author photos instead of those sketches, like either on your novels or on the Sunny books? Yeah. Well, for my novels, I've had so many photos over the years from short hair to long hair to fluffy hair, <laughs> fluffier hair. And yes, and they float around the web and you'll have children come up and say, you don't look anything like your author photo. <laughs> yeah. And you make those author photos. The publisher isn't like working with you to create them. Yeah. So the author photos, in my case, it's always been um, a photographer who I've hired. And so I just always did that because I knew a lot of photographers coming out of advertising. So I've always hired and paid for an author photo over the years. And then you just email it to the the publisher after you've airbrushed it perfectly, you know. <laughs> okay, so you've got all your copy together for the book. You looked at the copy edits, and then you sent them back to the publisher. So is that the last you see of the book before it goes to the printer? No. So now we start to get um, our passes. So these will be printout passes from wherever we're publishing it. So we might be publishing it in... United States, we're going to be publishing in Asia, they'll send us the actual color printouts. And this is kind of important to see because especially with like full color and honestly, even in the early baby mouse days, like baby mouse, the only spot color on it was pink, but the pink could vary from print run to print run. So you kind of had to keep an eye on it. Um, and this is, this is sort of your second and third last chance to make sure the art is perfect, that nothing has happened to the final, uh, to the files. And so you kind of crawl through them obsessively looking for anything that's wrong. And when you're doing this, um, it seems like there's often a lot of stuff to catch, you know, like someone changes the copy edit that you marked, and then the kerning on the speech balloon got all, all strange, or, you know, maybe the page got a little misaligned, or, you know, kind of like any one of these, these multitudinous things where between the point where the files were designed in house, and when they went to the proofer or the printer, something may have gone a little wonky. Yes. And so this is where I, this is where doing the final work digitally is a huge lifesaver where either Matt or somebody in the art department at the publisher can make these corrections uh, pretty easily usually. So that's a, that's a huge time saver, I would say. It's funny, usually a lot of the time, the things that we're looking at are that the page number folios um, show up, like little things, you know, don't drop off like that. And so, I mean, this this kind of leads to another question is like, obviously, all of us have bought books in a store that have weird errors in them. Like, inevitably, there's always one more thing to fix with your book. So as you're moving further and further along this process, what kind of changes can you make? And how late in the game are you able to make those? What kinds of changes? Like, yes, And what can you absolutely not make when you're at this proof stage yeah like what's the timeline of oh no i want to fix that well you can't add more pages usually <laughs> so you can, <laughs> that's the big no -no. yes that's, that's a no-no that's the one i feel like we haven't been in a situation where we've had to do any drastic changes ever like that it's all of our stuff has been pretty small usually so it's been much more detail oriented they really try to avoid those kinds of disasters by having it go through copy edit before with the art so that by the time you get to that stage, it's not going to hold up a printing. So you're, you're seeing a few rounds of proofs and you're like, okay, this looks good. And then it goes off to the printer. Uh, so are you then able to be done and kind of draw a line under the whole experience? So we'll get an ARC, which is a, an ARC, it's an advanced reader copy of the book. And we can kind of sometimes still make some changes there. It depends usually how much time is left between 
when we see at the ARC and when it's due to hit the shelves, there's usually not a whole lot we can change at that point, I would say. You just have to suffer then. (laughs) (laughs) And what kinds of other things are you doing kind of as you're moving from the process where you've basically handed the book off and you're kind of ramping up toward publication? Like what kinds of things are you and Matt doing to get ready for your book being published? So usually already at this point, I'm writing another book. (laughs) Yes, that's an important thing to say that, you know, when... When all of this stuff is happening, that's not necessarily the same sort of creative work as writing. Like it is work that will take up your time, but you don't necessarily need to kind of halt all creative processes until your book is in the world. You know, while you're, you're sporadically reviewing copy edits and proofs of things, you can be kind of getting a, a new start on your next project. Yeah, and we had to learn how to manage that early on because Random House wanted us to, we started by bringing out four baby mouse books a year, which was... (laughs) That's a lot of books. That's like 400 pages of comic books a year. And it was so insane. So we, we kept up that pace for, I don't know, five or six years. And then we slowly went from four books a year to three books to two. And now we're at one book a year. So we learned how to juggle the minute I was done my part of the writing and the layout while he's doing finals, I'm writing the next book or maybe I'm on a different stage of the copy edit process. So I'm always working on a different part of a different book than he is. Matt has this massive calendar on his wall where he breaks down everything by like month over two years period (laughs) to show where it's going to be happening. But yes, you should be starting your next book because usually by the time we're done that, uh, there's about a year before it's actually going to see the light of day. Sometimes maybe it's six months Um, with random house. Usually our book is finished a year before it's physically published. Yeah. So that's a lot of time to do stuff in. Yes. And so we might be starting to, if we're going to be touring um, for a book, which is going on book tour, we might start talking to our publicist, um, try to come up with a good hook for, you know, a tour and just sort of start to think about that a little bit. I mean, obviously, this will have changed over the years, both because, you know, you have a very long running series, and also the nature of these things have changed over time. But how do you uh, handle promoting your books and sort of talking about them? Like, when do you start talking about a book that you've been working on? And kind of how is that getting integrated into sort of other stuff that's going on with you? Like, are you yelling on Twitter a lot? Are you going on book tours? Like, what kinds of work are you doing? And how soon do you start doing it? So children's authors, Book touring isn't the same as adult authors. Adult authors mostly go to bookstores, you know, and children's authors can't really do that as much because kids can't drive. So they can't get to the store themselves. So you're dealing with parents who are trying to manage um, getting very busy children to come and see you. So we prefer to go to the schools. So when we're book touring or if we're doing an event, we do what's called a school visit where we go and talk about our books at, at the school. Um, to like massive assemblies of kids, you know, 500 kids at a go. And we're going directly to our audience. So uh, that's one portion of it. We'll also go to a lot of educator conferences. Some of these are ALA, which is the American Library Association, or NCTE, which is a big national teachers association. And this is more where we are talking about our books to the teachers, to the librarians, to the professors teaching future teachers. So we're kind of going to the influencers. Um, That's another thing we do. And those conventions are usually going on all year round. Occasionally we travel together, but uh, mostly we try to split up the work. Like he'll, he'll do something and I'll do something else. Because you have to be working on your books at the same time all this other stuff's going on. Exactly, exactly. And we do similar presentations. And it's just trying to manage being able to work while being on the road is that is that is very hard, actually. This is obviously a time consuming and complicated and labor intensive process. When you are kind of going into this and thinking about this, you know, kind of like, especially now that you've worked out a system, like, how do you plan for it? Like you said that Matt has a giant calendar, like do you and he and your editor kind of all sit down and figure out what to do? How does that work? We usually with the editor will come up with a couple of key dates. So the key dates we come up with in the beginning, it's geared towards a publishing season. So for instance, 
for a baby mouse book now that we're working on. We know we want it to come out uh, next July. So when we're figuring out, we, we work in reverse. So the key dates we have to figure out are when I deliver the manuscript to the editor, when the editor sends me the revised manuscript. Sometimes we might leave in a date for when I give my revision back to the editor. Occasionally we'll have you know, time physically built in for multiple revisions. And then the other key delivery dates we nail down are when we get sketches in, uh, which for us is our Matt's pencil layouts, and then where we get final art in. So we kind of really have to nail those dates in, especially the final art date, because um, especially when we're working with more complicated books like Sunny, which is in full color, and we have a colorist uh, man- doing the color. Um, we work with an amazing colorist, Lark Pien, who's a creator herself. We have to be juggling her schedule too, her availability. So um, we have to be cognizant of what everybody else is working on. We have to line people up. You know, we kind of have to make sure everybody's schedule aligns nicely. Do you guys have like a big shared Google calendar you're all working on? Or are you just spending a lot of time in email? Like kind of how do you end up coordinating all of this? You know what? We, we just use email. I know some people use um, like Slack and uh, like Google Docs, um, but we pretty much only use email. So it sounds like that's all the schedule for the making the book process. But what about the stuff with copy editing, with proofs, all of that? Do you just, you know, go to the door one day and find there's a giant envelope of proofs there that you have to turn around in three days? Or is there some sort of system or schedule that you know about that's involved? Yes, there is no system or schedule. So you have to- <laughs> there's actually no system or schedule in getting notes from your editor because your editor also is working on many multiple projects. I'm just one of my editors at Different Houses Projects. They're working on series or novels, graphic novels. They've got tons on their plate. So you might think you'll get it back. Maybe I'll get it back this month and you might get it back the next week or it might show up, you know, on Friday night when you're heading out of town. And the same thing is with art corrections, copy edit, all that stuff will just, it just flies in at you. So We definitely have like a seven day work week. You just have to go with the flow, you know? Yeah. But when your editor does send things like copy edits or proofs, they are like presumably communicating with you to say like, I need these back at some specific time. Yes. So they'll email you and say, "Um, we'd like to have it back in like two weeks or they'll give you a very specific date. So um, and you just have to, Sometimes you can push and say, I'm traveling, I need three weeks. So I, I usually always do this thing where I'm like, I need more time. And then I turn it in early because I, I can't let it go. I just, I'd rather just get it off my desk than have it linger. So it's my weird quirk. I mean, that's definitely the direction that I think an editor would prefer that quirk to go <laughs> rather than the opposite of, oh, yeah, I'll do that tomorrow. And then like a month later, it shows up. Yeah. No, I think one thing that we try to be very good at, um, and it's been hard. I'm sure we have slipped up a couple times over the years is to really um, turn things in on schedule. You know, it's it's funny listening to you talk about this. And I'm thinking about some freelance work that I'm doing right now and how much this changes. So like you were telling about how earlier you used to be doing like four of these books in a year. And now you've got multiple books going on at different publishers. Do you find that the flexibility and kind of scheduling of these things varies depending on how tight your deadlines are or which publisher you're at, or is it basically just chaos all the time? It can be chaos all the time. I feel like lately it goes in waves. Like we've, we've definitely lately hit a couple of waves where everybody wants everything at the same time. It just happens and you kind of have to take a deep breath and, and, and talk to people and say, you know, how can we best manage this? I think the one thing that is super frustrating that has never changed over the years is Matt and I, um, we occasionally like to take vacation, <laughs> not and not what I know, and not shocking. Often, I would say we don't take vacation, and inevitably something comes flying in. So I have started to try to act like I'm at a publisher when I go on vacation now, where I put a a message in my out, you know, my email saying I will be out of the office for the next two weeks. So you know, talk to Matt. <laughs> so yes. it's nice to have a partner in crime who can at least you know, field things while you're unavailable. It is, it is, it is super nice. And, and he does it with me, although I can often not 
you know, I can't make art corrections. So I'm, I am not trained in that part of the production, but sometimes you just need somebody to make a call. Like we need to fix this copy edit. We need to do it now. Somebody needs to just tell us what to do. So did I hear correctly that he's in China currently? He's not in China currently. Okay. (laughs) It was at one point. Yeah. We worked on projects where we worked on the first Sunny book. He was in China. So that I was going to say that's a hell of a time difference. Yeah. I mean, he's on the East Coast and I'm on the West Coast now, so it's fine. So he's been up for, it's very funny living on the, I mostly have lived on the East Coast for most of my life. And in the last seven years, we've been on the West Coast, maybe eight years. And so uh, by the time you wake up on the West Coast, my mailbox is full because everybody's been going <laughs> for hours. Already. And you also can't just pop over to his house and grab something no. if he's out of town. No, no. It's inconvenient. So can you give us an estimate of how long the the part of the book that is like, you know, from having the idea to finishing the script and the art takes and then how long from there, you know, copy editing, proofs, cover design, layout to the point that you get the book to the printer, how long they both take? We're working on a new sunny book. So that I mean, I'm estimating it's about like a two year process. Okay. And is that one year of creating stuff and one year of copy editing stuff or? (laughs) It's like, uh, it's back and forth, I would say, you know, you kind of like get a chunk, like I'll turn in the manuscript, that'll be a couple months of me working. And then we'll wait to hear from the editor, I'll get the editor notes, then I'll revise it, send it back. And then Matt will start sketching. That'll be a couple of months, a couple of months of me laying it out, three to four months of him doing final art simultaneously and feeding the art to the colorist. So it's kind of people are working simultaneously. How many projects are you working on at a time at this point? Matt and I are working on three projects together. And then I'm working on a novel additionally, and he's working on a a novel additionally. So we're probably both working on four things at the same time. Bless you. I know. I'm sorry. And congratulations. Yeah, I have children to put through college now, you know, I'm, I can't slow down, unfortunately. So. <laughs> so you have an agent? Yes. Is she involved in this process at all? She is not. Um, so my agent is a literary agent out of New York City. And um, she's involved in so far as she, you know, she helps negotiate the deal. And she advises us on marketing. Sometimes I'll ask for her advice on creative stuff, but for us, she's pretty hands-off creatively um, because that's the way we want it. I think undoubtedly with some other authors, she might be more hands-on creatively. And is she kind of uh, keeping track of stuff with your publisher while all this is going on? Like, hey, you were supposed to send a check out because this manuscript got delivered or things like that? Or are you guys mostly handling that stuff on your own? No, she's handling that. For books in the publishing world, you get paid like when you sign a contract is when you turn in a draft, when you turn in the art, um, when it's published. So they're the one, uh, the agency actually manages the payment system for which we are very grateful because you actually really don't want to be having those money conversations with somebody that you're working with creatively. In my opinion, I find it very awkward. Oh yeah. Hard agree. <laughs> and I, I know that there's a lot of resistance. Sometimes I've met creators, not necessarily comics creators who are very suspicious of agents, but I've had an agent from the beginning and I, I love it, quite frankly. It really allows you to just be the artist and not have to worry about getting paid. So this is kind of a hippy-dippy question, but this is technically an episode about finishing your book. And as a person who is currently finishing a book, I'm feeling very sentimental about this stuff. So like, do you have at any point in this madcap process moments where you sit and have a feeling of satisfaction of, I have finished this book, it is done, and it is a good book, and I'm proud of it. And if so, assuming that you get to have that moment of cherishing your book child, does that happen when you finish it? Or does it happen like when it is a physical book that is in the world that people can read and buy? Or when it goes to the printer? Yeah, like what counts as the delivery of your book baby as far as you're concerned? It happens when my mom says, I just went to Barnes & Noble, and your book is there, and I faced it out, and then I went and told the sales lady that she needs to order more because you're a local girl who grew up here. 
So that is, Aww. that's the, uh, that's the nicest thing is when, uh, my mom goes and badgers the bookseller. It's nice that your mom is still doing that. My mom also does that. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like just, she'll go and say, did you order this book yet? So yeah. Thanks mom. <laughs> I mean, is it still nice? Like, do you still feel good about Hey man, I finished this this book. It is. It always feels good. Actually, I had a great moment today. It's I'm at my um my daughter is is 10. She's in elementary school, so it's we've got the scholastic book fair going on and so we went to the book fair after when I picked her up from school and she said, you know, I want to buy some books and we went in and she's like, "Oh, look, there's your book, Mommy." And I'm like, "Oh, that feels good. It's right there." Now, don't buy the stupid pencils. Buy a book. No. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have uh, scholastic book fairs at your school when you were a kid? We did. I actually have very fond memories of Scholastic Book Fairs, you know, buying those like puppy posters and the koala bear posters. And yeah, no, I loved uh, I loved the book fair thing. I think it's 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 a nice culture to um, get reading into the hands of kids. That's so nice. You get to see your books there now. Yeah. So how how do you feel? This is a, possibly another another hippy dippy question, but how do you feel about this whole part of the process that we've been talking about, like the part after you, you turn all the art in and it's all like copy edits and proofs and line editing and reviewing the cover copy. Like, is that a good part of the process or a tedious part of the process? Or, you know, does it make you feel like, you know, everything's all coming together or. I feel like it's, it's a tedious part of the process. I think the best part of the process for me, it's probably not the best part of the process for Matt because his work is continuing is when I, when I turn in the layouts to him, because I can then I can see it on the page because it's laid out with the art. So I have a general sense that, oh, this this is going to work nicely. Um, and I also even get that I get a nice feeling when the, the script is final, because then I've had somebody else besides myself and Matt read it and say, it's OK, you know, because I do think that's one problem with being a writer or an artist is it's a pretty lonely profession. You know, we just all work in our own little offices at home and you don't get a lot of outside feedback until, unless you talk to your editor. So you're grateful to hear what they have to say. It's really nice. Having been on both sides of that, it's nice to have that moment of like, Hey, you made a great thing or Hey, a person is reading this thing that I made. It really, it doesn't get old for me anyway. Yeah. No. And I mean, I love editors, so I really enjoy, I like revising. I'm probably a little weird in that as a writer, um, but I've always really enjoyed revising. I hate writing a first draft. I hate it. Um, but I'm always happy to like hear generally to get notes to make it better. So is there, is there any part of this, this final part that you enjoy or is it just, it's like all TDM top to bottom? You know, I, I, like a lot of the copy edit stuff and the flap copy, that's a bit tedious. Um, it's fun. I like it when I get, I feel like I do, it does start to feel real when you get your ARC in the mail. So when you get your ARC and it says on sale, you know, July, 2018, I'm like, it's almost there. It's coming. Um, and that feels like it's, it's almost alive. So that's, that's a happy part. And then you can kind of sneak this ARC to your, you know, your kid's best friend. I'm like, nobody else is going to see it for a year, but here you go, kid. I'll be like, I wrote you into the acknowledgments and didn't tell you. Look, here you are. Yes, I've done that several times. Like, here, it's dedicated to you. Aw. Uh, but do you think it's it's an important part of the process, even if it is uh, kind of tedious and terrible? <laughs> it is. <laughs> tedious and terrible. It is. All this, all the end stuff is mostly to help market the book, you know, and that's, that's, is, that's a big part of the process because you don't want to publish your book and then just have it, you know, be all spelled incorrectly. Yeah. Or just thump, not, not have it hit the world with a splash or, you know, you want to help it find its way in the world. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you want to say that we've missed about this part of like finishing and wrapping up your book? No. You guys like asked me just about everything. All the possible questions. <laughs> Listen, we're nerds. That's why we're doing this podcast. You're the first person who ever asked me about flap copy, I can honestly say. <laughs> God, it's like, it's so stressful. I've had a couple books come out like that I've worked on where I haven't seen any of that copy until the book has been published, like for some work for hire stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. 
That's what they think this book is about. Sure, whatever. Fascinating. I know. It's so funny. It's it's so luxurious to have people asking me about this stuff now. Like, oh, you you want my opinion on the on the cover copy? Well, gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a hard line because you know there's a whole design departments at publishers and marketing departments that that's their job to help shape that. So you have to not. I feel like it's. It's good to not be too precious about that stuff. Oh, I, I love it that other people do this. Yeah. I Nothing makes me happier than getting an email where my editor is like, how does this look? And I can say, it looks great. Yep. They sure did do their job that I didn't have to do because I'm not self-publishing this. That's amazing. Yeah. I love exactly. it. So Jenny, um, as we wrap up, can you tell people where they can find you and your books and possibly Matt too, if they would like to find Matt on the internet or in other spaces. Yes. So we are um, both on Twitter. I'm Jenny Holm, J-E-N-N-I-H-O-L-M. I feel like Matt is probably Matthew Holm on Twitter. Um, You can find out where we're traveling, if we're going to be in your area or at Comic-Con or something like that, usually on our blogs. I'm at jenniferholm.com, and I'm pretty sure he's matthewholm.net. And you can buy our books at your independent bookseller, at your large bookseller like Barnes & Noble, or, of course, online at Amazon. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming out and talking to us all about this. This was was an extremely helpful discussion of all these bits and pieces at the end of the publishing process. Yes, thank you for walking us through the 8 million ticky-tack things you have to do when you're almost done with your book. <laughs> we genuinely appreciate it. Just check check for whiskers and tail. That's all I have to say. It's very important for any good baby mouth. You assemble your animal part style guide for your copy editor. Yes, we have an animal style guide. That's so funny. Fantastic. Thank you. Next time, we'll be talking to Jen Wang about what it means to be a professional cartoonist. What's it like to just make comics all the time? I'm really looking forward to it, and we'll see you then. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com.